Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, if you fail the test, can you retake it? It's back to school for us as we focus on the COVID-19 business interruption test case. We ask the important questions. What does this mean? What happens next? Will anyone still be listening at the end of this podcast? We look at the impact of the 100 million increase in the emergency services levy in New South Wales. ASIC review the regulations for brokers and advisors to provide personal advice. And we get philosophical and ask, when is a crash actually a crash? Hello, everyone. I'm joined by Terry McMullen, publisher of Insurance News. Morning, Terry. Morning, Andrew. Failing tests is one area I'm a particular expert in, but in your considerable experience, did you ever fail a test? Uh, you know, look, oh, yes, yes, I I did fail my first driving test because I actually did such a, a good parallel park that the examiner couldn't get out the door. <laughs> <laughs> I'd also like to welcome John Deeks, our managing editor. Hello, John. Hi. I imagine the only you've ever failed is an eye test. Well, <clears throat> I actually did score 4% in a biology test once, so uh, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> Well, look, before we start, some listeners might be interested to know why we're doing this podcast. It's something we've discussed at Insurance News for a long time. With the magazine, Weekly Bulletin, Daily and Breaking News, Insurance News has long been focused on reporting what's happening within the insurance industry in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, with this podcast, we're taking a slightly different approach. The, the coronavirus crisis has really shown the value of the various insurance news services to the insurance community, especially in a community that's largely working from home. Last month, for example, we had more than 243,000 visits and well over 797,000 page views from nearly 119,000 unique visitors. Those are pretty impressive figures for, for a service working with, with such a focused audience. Our podcast service allows us to give out a bit more information and commentary on the issues that are shaping the industry. We also, doing it just uh, as an audio means that we can maintain our our belief that we all have good faces for radio. Um, in some cases, we'll also go into background on why we believe an issue is newsworthy and what else makes makes a story a story. Exactly, Terry. So this week's news has been dominated by the New South Wales Court of Appeal, publishing its judgment on the COVID-19 business interruption test case. Our journalists have understandably focused on this. Terry, there's obviously a lot to discuss, but what does this mean for insurers? Well, what it could mean is a lot of money. Um, insurers never intended to cover uh, their clients against uh, the pandemic, but they relied on, a, on an outdated, repealed act from 1908 to, to actually do it. And that was uh, that act was, was actually followed by the, the Biosecurity Act. I can't really see how, but nobody noticed or very few people seem to have noticed and didn't make the changes in their, their wordings for business interruption policies. Uh, I think it's going to cost them a lot of money. That all seems pretty serious. Uh, how do we get into the situation? Well, it seems to have been an accident. Certainly the, the learned judges at the, um, at the New South Wales Court of Appeal are happy to say that maybe it was an accident, but that the insurers 
ability to to actually slip past on the, the basis of a mistake really wasn't acceptable. Um, there are other other ways that, that they can now approach uh, the issue, maybe start up another test case, but I don't like their chances of actually getting this to go to the High Court and or getting a different, even if they did, getting a different uh, decision from the High Court. John, what's the legal opinion about the test case? Well, of course, that very much depends on which lawyer you talk to. And we're pretty much in uncharted territory here. And don't forget that some law firms are representing clients in business interruption claims disputes. But overall, lawyers don't seem terribly surprised by the outcome. And they also don't hold out much hope for the proposed appeal. John Beryl, principal at Beryl and Watson, summed up his thoughts for us. I've got to say the decision was one that I expected because the words are the words. I mean, the, 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 the words in the policies that I've seen, and I've seen just about all of them, the, the wording is plain. The meaning is plain. The, da- the stats are against them on getting leave because it's only like one in six or one in seven cases that get leave to, for the High Court to hear their case. So they're up against it to get the leave. But even if they do get leave, you've got the you got five judges in the court of appeal who um, have found one way, and it's it's a stretch that they're they're pushing it uphill to get the high court to overturn that. I would have thought. And as you discussed earlier with Terry, how we ended up here remains something of a mystery. It's five years since the Quarantine Act was repealed and replaced. So why did so many policies still refer to it? Mark Darwin, partner at Herbert Smith Freehills told me that it's a mistake that really should never have happened. I think it, I think it's really surprising that huge insurance companies don't have compliance departments that would have ways of reviewing their policies on at least, if not an annual basis, at least every second year or something. Um, you know, one would imagine that wordings that refer to legislation in future won't just talk about an act or subsequent amendments, but will say in any act which replaces or repeals that and and uh, brings into account a common theme, you know, there'll be ways in which this will be addressed so that it's less likely to happen in the future. But, you know, it's always easy with hindsight to think about these things. But you're right, it is one of those things that one would think someone might have had a compliance system in place to be able to deal with picking this sort of stuff up. Now, a few weeks ago, we reported on the UK test case. John, what makes the UK and US cases different? So while the Australian test case focused purely on the Quarantine Act wording issue, the UK case was much more comprehensive, dealing with the kinds of issues such as proximity to outbreaks and prevention of access that could be tackled by a second test case here. As we've reported, the UK test case outcome was a mixed bag, but found against insurers on a number of issues, which will concern insurers here. Of course, an appeal has now been heard in the UK Supreme Court, and we're awaiting an outcome. In the US, there have been more than a thousand cases across the different states, with insurers winning most, but not all. IAG announced they will make 865 million provision. And last week, Suncorp increased its total provision for COVID-related business interruption claims to 195 million. It seems the insurers had an idea this might occur. Terry, what's the industry's next steps? The the next steps will be sorted out. But as I've said before, I I really don't see that a high court 
case is probably the answer. It's, and as John's pointed out, it is quite possible that the insurers could mount another test case using more of the basis of the uh, the UK argument. The problem with it, with trying to say that the Quarantine Act, uh, you know, it's okay to have a, a wording that, that refer to the Quarantine Act, the fact is that the Quarantine Act actually identifies, from 1908, actually identifies the diseases that they will not cover against and it doesn't mention coronavirus. So there's, there's, it's double jeopardy. I don't know what they're going to do next, but I, I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised to see another case, a test case coming up and again going to the Court of Appeal rather than the High Court. A case of retaking the test. Um, will this affect the Star Entertainment Group's business interruption claim? Uh, the, the Star claim is a is a, a totally different case I think it's uh, it's being fought um, against a number of prominent insurers led by Chubb and uh, it's a really hard one to follow but star certainly is have, has had a false start or two on it and, uh, and now back in court. I don't know how that's going to go, and I would I would hate to uh, even dare to predict any kind of outcome. In other news, we have another industry favourite: the New South Wales Emergency Services Levy. ESL will increase by a further one hundred million over the next four years in the latest New South Wales state budget. This is likely to go down well, isn't it, John? Um, no, uh, it's actually very disappointing because the Thode report into New South Wales tax reform this year recommended all specific taxes on insurance products, including the ESL, should be abolished. As we know, taxes on premiums in New South Wales are excessive, up to 50% on home policies and 70% on commercial policies. And yet there's no sign of this changing in the budget. And as you say, the ESL is set to increase again. The insurance industry would have hoped the severity of fires in the state over last summer would have injected some urgency into the debate but it doesn't seem to have happened. And don't forget the ESL was all set to be abolished in 2017 before a last-minute U-turn. The reaction from the industry to the most recent snub has been, I think, relatively muted. And I suspect the likes of ICA and NEBA are just getting tired of saying the same thing over and over again. The situation is different in Victoria with the Royal Commission. Terry, why is it so different? The Royal Commission in Victoria followed the 2009 uh, bushfires and at that time the Victorian government also had a, a fire services levy in action which worked in much the same way as the New South Wales system. That is, it, it, it took the premium and then it added on a levy and then it added on GST and then it added on stamp duty to absolutely maximise the, state, the state's take. I worked, I've worked um, both in, in lobbying and in reporting this issue for as long as I've been in this industry, and I never thought the Victorian government would give it away. But the Royal Commission said that the, the real problem was that the levy system is a terrible disincentive to people to actually insure. And it's a matter of affordability. In the New South Wales case, it's in some areas, it's the the actual tax take is more than fifty percent of the of the premium. We should try to shy away from personal advice. 
ASIC have announced reviewing the rules for brokers and advisors to provide personal advice across a limited range of areas. Terry, is this likely to change a broker's reluctance to provide personal advice? I hope so. As we are at the moment, brokers tend, or many or most brokers, tend to protect themselves by qualifying any advice they give as general advice. Personal advice is pretty important in when you're starting to get down to the nitty-gritty of protecting your client. Um, but you can understand that the, the ramifications of providing personal advice that's wrong can get messy. So, therefore, I think that um, if they do work in some way to make it possible, not only for brokers but also for financial advisors, to be able to offer personal advice in a way that, that does not expose the advisor to uh, the full force of, of our litigation system, uh, then well and good. I think this is a first step. I, I really hope that we, we see it progress. And finally today, a man who followed his stolen car after spotting it travelling on the road has had a crash claim denied. John, that's going to need some explanation. Okay. So as our regular readers would know, we pay quite a close attention to the outcome of claims disputes as they make their way through the Australian Financial Complaints Authority. There's so many lessons to be learned and the feedback we get from brokers and insurers is that it's vital for them to understand how AFCA deals with key issues. In this particular case, a man had his car stolen and a few days later, while driving his other vehicle, he saw the thief behind the wheel. He called police who advised him not to give chase but shortly afterwards, the two vehicles collided. The insurer said it would pay for damage to the stolen vehicle, but not the other one, because the accident was the direct result of attempts to stop the theft. The insured argued that the crash was an accident caused by the reckless driving of the thief, but an investigation found otherwise. If anything, it had been the thief who tried to get out of the way. AFCA sided with the insurer, and I suppose there are two lessons here. One, leave enforcement to the police, and two, don't lie about the circumstances of a collision. Insurers deploy specialist forensic investigators who have an amazing ability to establish things like how fast each vehicle was travelling and whether damage is consistent with a description of events. Crime doesn't pay and in the right circumstances, nor do insurers. <laughs> Nicely put. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Terry McMullen and John Deeks. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.